Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everyone, my name is uh, Anke Schnook and I, uh, I really like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and your AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Kathy Weiss, and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And one of my favourite quotes by Emma Goldman is, If voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. And I'm speaking to Dr Dana Goswick about writing the book of the world. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Could you explain what writing the book of the world is about? So writing the book of the world is a book by Ted Sider, and it's basically an extended defense of Sider's notion of structure. First, he explains to us what structure is, and then he defends its existence on Quinean grounds. He follows the sort of methodology of Quine in his defense of structure. Uh, he argues that we should believe the ontology and ideology of our best theory. And Sider takes structure to be the key ideological posit of our best theory. Now, could you explain about Siderian structure? Uh, so Sider's notion of structure has its origins in the work of Quine and of David Lewis. Uh, so to understand Sider's notion of structure, we need to look back to a few key things Quine has said and Lewis has said, particularly Quine's distinction between ontology and ideology and Lewis's idea of natural properties. So first we need to understand Quine's distinction between ontology and ideology. In the 1950s, Quine argued that a philosophical theory's ontology that is, what objects the theory thinks exist, and the theory's ideology, what concepts the theory is expressed in, are both important. Uh, however, although the philosophical community largely embraced Quine's writings about ontology, it largely ignored his writings about ideology. Ideology was generally thought to be only about our subjective choice of language, and thus, not to be particularly important. Sider thinks this dismissal of ideology is a mistake. He argues that there's a privileged ideology, a structure the world comes ready-made with. Some concepts carve reality at the joints. Which concepts is it that Sider thinks carve reality at the joints? To answer this question, we need to look at the influence David Lewis has had on Sider's notion of structure. Lewis building on work which had been done by David Armstrong at the University of Sydney, argued that proper, some properties are perfectly natural. 
So he makes this distinction between natural properties and properties that aren't natural. An example of a natural property is being an electron. An example of a property that's not natural is being an electron or a dog. Natural properties make for genuine similarity. So two objects, which both instantiate the property being an electron, are genuinely similar in a way in which two objects, which both instantiate being an electron or a dog, may not be. Lewis's notion of naturalness was only intended to apply to properties. Sider's central insight was to ask, what if we extended the notion of naturalness beyond properties and beyond the predicates which express properties? So Sider argues, the world comes ready-made with a complete ideological structure. Just as some properties carve nature at the joints, so do some quantifiers, so do some functions, and so forth. For any putative ideology, for any sort of concepts that your theory is using, we can ask whether or not those concepts cause carve nature at the joints. And there's going to be an objective answer to that question because the world is structured. So argue, Cider. The central theme of the book is realism about structure. Could you explain a bit about this? Sure. So... As I just mentioned, structure is a piece of ideology. It's a sort of ideological posit of ciders. It's the idea that describing the world using certain concepts is objectively better than describing the world using other concepts. Uh, Let me give you an example. Nelson Goodman famously asked whether describing the world in terms of blue and green objects was any better than describing the world in terms of GRU and blean objects. So, of course, we all know what blue and green are. GRU is a new term. Let's define it as an object is GRU if it's observed before 2100 and is green, or it's observed after 2100 and is blue. Likewise, we can say an object is blean if it's observed before 2100 and is blue, or is observed after 2100 and is green. So now, in 2015, Every blue object is also a blean object, and every green object is also a grew object. In our society, we use the concepts blue and green. Consider a society which instead uses the concepts grew and blean. Whereas I point to this shirt and say, it's blue and green striped, my friends in the other society point to it and say, it's grew and blean striped. We have both accurately described reality, but is one of our descriptions superior to the other? Sider argues that the blue-green description is superior to the grew-blean description because the concepts blue and green carve nature closer to the joints than do the concepts grew and blean. Sider's basis for saying this is that he's a realist about structure. He thinks nature contains ideological structure. The joints are there to be carved. An anti-realist about structure would argue that there are no such joints. Either the grew-blean description is as good a description of reality as the blue-green description is, or if it's not as good, it's not good for some subjective reason, maybe it's not as useful to us, rather than for some objective reason, because it fails to match reality. 
So Sider's realism about structure sort of gives him the basis or the argumentative ground for saying certain descriptions of the world are privileged. Certain descriptions correspond to reality better than others. So the concepts blue and green are objectively superior to the concepts grew and bling. So what was it that inspired your interest in writing the Book of the World? Well, so first off, it was just a general interest in insider's philosophy. Everything Sider writes is good. So I was initially drawn to the book simply because it was a new book by Sider. But once I read it, I became an instant convert, which doesn't happen very often in philosophy. Most of the time in philosophy, if you read somebody's view, you're immediately thinking about a bunch of objections and you're wanting to challenge what the person has said. But with writing the book of the world, I agreed with almost everything. I felt that Sider had clearly explained some sort of nebulous views that I intuitively believed but had never clearly articulated. Uh, I felt the notion of structure was hugely explanatory. It was sort of a tool uh, which helped me more clearly understand my own philosophical attitudes, why I believed the views I believed, why I cared about the debates I cared about and didn't care about the debates I didn't care about. So I just found structure very useful both in terms of doing philosophy and in terms of understanding my own approach to philosophy. Now, you just mentioned before a term joint carving. What, what is joint carving? So joint carving is a metaphor. Imagine you're visiting the States and you're invited to an American Thanksgiving. We've got a big turkey. Every Thanksgiving we carve a turkey. So picture the turkey sitting there on the table. The turkey is naturally structured, right? There are two drumsticks. There's the breast and so on. Now imagine reality itself. Reality is naturally structured. There are the blue things and the green things. There are the electrons. There are the cows. There are the bicycles. There is the existence quantifier, which ranges over everything which exists. There's the plus function. This is what reality is like. When we speak of blue things, we carve nature at the joints. When we speak of an existence quantifier, which ranges over everything which exists, we carve nature at the joints. Were we instead to speak of bleen things or of a quantifier which ranges over only presently existing objects, we would not be carving nature at its joints. So the joint carving is just the idea that reality comes with natural joints. It's structured. Do you think that structure resolves the question of personal Identity? Aha. This is one of my favorite things about structure. So whether structure resolves the question of personal identity depends on the nature of structure itself. If the structure of the world contains personal identity facts, then structure resolves the question of personal identity. If the structure of the world doesn't contain personal identity facts, then structure doesn't resolve the question of personal identity. Sider himself argues that structure doesn't resolve the question of personal identity. He thinks that there are a lot of different accounts of personal identity in the philosophical literature, but there's no one best account. There's no unique candidate for the meaning of personal identity, which carves nature at the joints. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with Sider about this. Some people find personal identity very interesting. I've always found it less interesting and Reading Sider's book sort of gave me an explanation of why I found it less interesting. It's because I don't think there's any fact of the matter. 
So when you study personal identity, you're doing something interesting, but it's psychologically interesting or it's sociologically interesting. It's not philosophically interesting um, because there's nothing out there in the world that personal identity is aimed at. So when you learn about it, you aren't learning about the objective structure of the world. It's quite an interesting perspective because, yeah, I, I do I take an interest in personal identity, but... I think that um, maybe I can sort of grasp the, the concept you're getting at because I sort of feel that there is, I have no sense of permanent self within myself or I can't find that within anybody else. So I suppose in a way, because that's my philosophy on personal identity, it's, it's sort of a, a nothing concept because by saying that, personal identity not being anything that's that's permanent it's sort of well it's nothing do you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) so so one thing so if 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 structure resolved the question of personal identity then there'd be a sort of objective right answer if it doesn't which sounds like what you think and is what cider thinks and is also what i think then personal identity is a matter of convention so it's sort of some people might really care about psychology and say it's the same person if they have the same psychology. Somebody might, somebody else might think, look, persons are momentary. They only exist, you know, there's no sort of extended sense of self. And if, if structure doesn't resolve that question, then there's really no answer. It's just, it's almost a matter of preference or of sort of what works in certain circumstances rather than being uh, an objective fact of the matter. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm speaking to Dr. Dana Goswick about writing the book of the world. How does the value of truth play a part in writing the book of the world? Truth doesn't play much of an overt role in writing the book of the world, but we can see it as playing a background role. So realists and anti-realists are sometimes distinguished by the role they say truth as having. Realists often endorse a correspondence theory of truth. They think there's an objective way the world is and that our sentences are true when they correspond to the way the world is. It's certainly true that Sider thinks there's an objective way the world is. The central point of writing the book of the world is that part of the objective way the world is is that it contains structure. Truth also plays a role in Sider's distinction between substantive and non-substantive debates. He thinks substantive debates are those that are cast in joint carving terms. Non-substantive debates may be of great pragmatic interest, but they don't bring us closer to understanding the nature of the world. And thus, learning a non-substantive truth is, from a metaphysical point of view, less valuable than learning a substantive truth. This is the way Sider puts the point. He asks us to imagine or recall first coming to believe that morality, beauty, justice, knowledge, or existence is a mere projection of our conceptual scheme. Why does that feel so deflating? Why does it diminish the urgency of finding the truth? And why does it diminish the value of the truth once found? Answer, our original picture in these lofty domains is that of joint carving. 
giving up on objectivity means giving up on joint carving and hence diminishes the value of truth. How are non-structural concepts and metaphysical semantics connected? So metaphysical semantics uh, is a term of art. It's a term which Sider uses to denote a semantic theory which gives the meaning of words in purely joint carving terms. So that's going to be hard to do, right? Our sort of ordinary language, we don't give the meaning of our words in joint carving terms. So metaphysical semantics isn't going to look like the ordinary language we're speaking at all because it's only going to have meanings in terms of joint carving terms. The aim of a metaphysical semantics is to show how what we say in ordinary language fits into fundamental reality, into sort of reality which is carved at the joints. Cider doesn't say much about how our sort of ordinary, everyday, non-structural concepts connect up with metaphysical semantics. He does say we should take a non-fundamental, no doubt vague, and perhaps not even uniquely correct approach to the question of the relationship between fundamental and non-fundamental language, i.e. sort of between our ordinary language and between the metaphysical semantics. So it would be nice to have a translation manual which translates ordinary language into a joint carving language. Uh, Cider doesn't provide such a manual, and he suggests it's unlikely that there's a unique manual. So there's a project for sort of future grad students that are interested in structure, right? Can we map ordinary language into a joint carving language? Is there a unique metaphysical semantics? What is the difference between presentism and eternalism? Presentism and eternalism are views in the philosophy of time. And in fact, how we cash out the difference between presentism and eternalism is quite contentious. Some people do it in terms of which objects exist or which events exist. I prefer to see it as a debate about how much time exists. So a debate about sort of time itself and the nature of time. Presidents believe that only one moment of time exists and that which moment of time exists is dynamic. So it sort of changes from moment to moment which moment of time exists. You might worry that's a bit circular. But the one moment of time that exists for presentists is called the present. Eternalists, on the other hand, eternalists believe that many moments of time exist and that which moment of time exists is static. So the sort of central differences are presentists think there's one moment of time, it's the present, and it's dynamic, so it changes, and it's sort of privileged. The present is objectively privileged. Eternalists think there are many moments of time, it's static, it never changes which moments of time exist, and there's no sort of privileged present. There's just a bunch of moments of time, all of which are of equal ontological status. So which theory do you subscribe to? Uh, (laughs) Hands down (laughs) eternalism. Eternalism is is the dominant view uh, within metaphysics. I think there are different motivations. Eternalists tend to be motivated by wanting to go with with what our best science tells us, Um, and they take our best science to be sort of special relativity and general relativity, and they take that to show that there's no privileged present because what moment is present is sort of relative to a frame of reference, if we can even say any moment is present, 
but certainly we can say um, our best physics shows us there's no privileged present, and that makes presentism look like a sort of scientifically dodgy view. So certainly eternalism, I think, has the best arguments behind it. So what role does causation play in our lives? Our lives certainly seem to be embedded in causation, right? So I receive an email from you, which causes me to reply, which ultimately causes me to be here now speaking to you. We can all give examples, right? I pick up the cup, makes a banging sound. We can certainly all give examples where causation seems very real and seems very central to our lives. Despite this, Sider takes causation to be non-fundamental. Uh, that is, he thinks causation doesn't carve nature at the joints. Writing of his worldview, Sider says, there are no causal, nomic, or modal notions in its ideology. So one could certainly believe Sider's general arguments for structure without drawing the line exactly where Sider draws it. One could, for instance, argue contra Sider that causation does carve at the joints. Suppose, however, that Sider's right and causation isn't joint carving. Then what role does it play in our lives? Well, Sider is committed both to the existence of the fundamental to the concepts which carve nature at the joints, and he's also committed to the existence of the non-fundamental. So there are certainly plenty of concepts that don't carve nature at the joints, and they still exist. They're just not fundamental. There are plenty of objects which don't carve nature at the joints, and they still exist. They're just not fundamental. So Sider would be quite happy to say that even if causation isn't joint carving, it can still play a role in our lives. It's just that there's sort of nothing objective backing up that role that it plays in our lives, just like personal identity plays a, a role in our lives, but there's nothing objective backing up that role that it plays, or at least nothing joint carving backing it up. Well, you've fairly well, fairly thoroughly covered quite a few different theories on writing the book of the world, but do you have any further research you're going to do in this area? I'm very interested in, in modality. So modality has to do with necessity and possibility. And if you look at that quote I just read from Sider, when I was talking about causation, he says, there are no causal, gnomic, or modal notions in its ideology. So for Sider, necessity and possibility are really, by and large, a matter of convention. There's nothing out there in the world that corresponds to them. And that's probably the one thing in writing the book of the world that I disagree with. You know, Everything else, I think it's fine, I agree with. But the status of modality, I think, certainly deserves further investigation. One question we might want to ask is, is modality fundamental? Is the world, when we look at the structure of the world, and we say it comes ready-made with, let's say, electrons and a privileged existence quantifier? Does it also come ready-made with modality? So is it just a sort of fact about the world, say that anything that's a human being is necessarily a mammal? Is that a deep fact about the world? Or is that a sort of more shallow fact about, say, the way we use the word mammal or the way we use the word human? Or even our classification system as well. Yeah, exactly, you know, there exactly. could, could be a bit of sort of overlap. Uh, look, maybe an example of that is a, a horse and a donkey. 
and they're, they're two different species really, but they can actually produce an offspring, but the offspring, the mule, is infertile. So perhaps it's just in our classification system as well. What is a mammal? Yeah, yeah it's a very interesting question. If, if there can be any essential properties, say in species, because certainly due to evolution, Right. It looks like anything we say, we're going to be able to go one step back in the evolutionary history. And it's, in fact, you know, not true that that animal had that DNA because it hadn't yet evolved that DNA. So it looks certainly a, a difficult question. Yeah, well, that's right. I don't think we can ever escape our DNA either. I was, I was uh, reading about how our domestic dogs still have quite a, a few percentage of DNA from wolves, which is quite interesting, isn't it? I think, you know, when you look at a, a cute little lap dog sitting on your lap and you think, yeah, that they are still part wolf. <laughs> Certainly some dogs seem to be more wolf than others. I think my dog would have a very hard time surviving out in the wild, but some dogs look like they're quite capable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They wouldn't have a problem at all surviving in the wild. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio today. Excellent. Thank you very much, Beth, for giving me the opportunity. Very much enjoyed it and very much enjoyed the program. And I've been speaking to Dr. Dana Goswick. This is Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on the AM dial. Well... Hope you've enjoyed the program today. And yesterday was the one-year anniversary of Gough Whitlam's death. Very sad day. I think he was a great person in politics and I don't think we'll ever, ever have another Gough Whitlam. So I'd like to dedicate the program today to the memory of Gough Whitlam. Hello, I'm Jenna Thompson, and this is 3CR Community Radio on 855 on your dial. And this is Radical Philosophy. That's philosophy for everyone. <laughs> 